0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another Overcast Day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Oliver Webb, founder of Dig Brew Co. Oliver, hello. Hi there. Thank you for coming on the program today. We might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you?
1: Um, I've been thinking about this for the past week since I knew that we were doing this, and I think it's a very, um, obviously, an incredibly broad word and with an incredibly broad kind of range of definitions. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that I feel has come naturally to me, um, being the oldest sibling. Um, And I guess, ultimately, if I was advising someone on how to be a good leader, it would certainly be something along the lines of finding something that feels natural rather than uh, some kind of convoluted list of uh, proper practices, if that makes any sense.
0: Absolutely. And how would you describe your personal leadership style?
1: Um, Well, I'd certainly say if you looked at me over the last sort of three years, which has been the period uh, which I've been running Digbrew, uh, which is kind of by far the largest organization that I've ever had the pleasure of, of leading. It certainly changed a lot through kind of mm-hmm. learning from mistakes and things like that. Um, I'm quite an energetic person and I try and put that energy into the team, if that makes sense, through my own behavior. Um, and that certainly worked far better for me than experiences I've had where I've maybe taken a bit more of a backseat and expected things to be done without me giving that impetus of energy from the beginning.
0: Let's go back to the very beginning of your working life when you first started out in the working world. Was there any particular influence or individual that formed the way that you lead today?
1: Yeah, I think I had some incredibly... Well, when I first started started working when I was 14 years old, um, and that was teaching children, younger children, I suppose I was a child at the same time, um, to swim. Um, Obviously, initially, I wasn't kind of given the full responsibility of looking after a class of toddlers, um, but I did kind of grow into that role. Um, So I think maybe that's probably influenced, especially my early kind of, years of development as a leader, kind of working with, um, not with peers, but working with, with, with like children that you have a duty of care over, um, and then kind of going into the more, I suppose, post adulthood professional world. Um, I learned a hell of a lot from the tutors at my university course, um, I would say, and then I learned some very negative things from some people in the professional world that, that I Certainly, think of regularly, but not in a in a very kind of um, not in a way of admiration. I think would be a, a fair way of saying it.
0: What's the most important piece of advice do you think that people entering the working world today should have?
1: Um,
0: Because, of course, it's, it a, it's a very interesting uh, time for them. It's a time of transition from school to to work. Uh, and, of course, they're going to need to leg up, aren't they?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm just trying to imagine who in my life would ask me that question and then and then figure out what I would say to them and try and make it a bit more generalised for this. I think I was always told as I'm sure most people are told, to find some things that they enjoy. I think I'm certainly from a privileged position in that um, find something that's going to pay the bills wasn't the first thing that my parents needed to say. Um, though I'm sure lots of people will be told that. Um, I think if it was coming from me, I would advise people to, I suppose, kind of, Try and find a way of getting out of the mindset of being uh, an employed person or doing a job and making sure that um, everything that they kind of do goes through a filter of, of how they're doing it and for themselves. And I don't mean that to be sounding too kind of individualistically kind of centered, but more kind of one of the things that I really, really try and I make a very conscious effort of trying to. To kind of instill within the workforce that we have at Digbrew Brew is, is that um, that they, they really isn't uh, a system by which if they were to leave they would create a, a vacancy that would be filled by somebody else. It's kind of the team is built up of all of us as individuals, and we need to spend as much time as possible negotiating that so that it works for everybody, and that way everyone can bring their strengths to the team and. Also, be honest about their weaknesses, and we can work together to not necessarily work around those weaknesses, but to improve everybody as best that we can. Um, so, I think if I was advising someone younger than me, or like you know maybe a teenager or like a younger adult going into the workforce, it's like you know be honest about that. Like you're going into this job for you, and and at the end of the day, you need to improve yourself and help to improve the team that you're going to be within, whether you're at the bottom of that team in the middle of it or like leading it, like, you know, you're all people and you need to work together rather than being stuck in this boss mindset, which Mm -hmm. I think people adopt because and then they get a job and they go, I've got a boss now. And that's, you know, and they've had older siblings and older friends and family members. A boss is this new kind of concept and it needn't be so um, independent from any of those other experiences I wouldn't have
0: said. Now, of course, part of leading a team uh, is leading human beings, which, uh, they're not always at their best. Sometimes they are fallible and sometimes they, uh, aren't getting along with each other all that well. How do you resolve conflict within the workplace?
1: Um, I've taken different approaches. Sometimes I've tried to, uh, I suppose nip it in the bud, if you like. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, but I think I've been stung a little bit by kind of maybe, maybe stepping out of line slightly. And if I wasn't looking at the situation from a "quote unquote" boss's point of view, um, but more from like a peer's point of view, like I would have recognised that maybe just a little bit of time and space would have been, would have been preferable. Um, and then, I mean, from like personal experience, and like uh, Dick Brew is it's 20 people. It's not huge. Um, so kind of most kind of problems within the workforce kind of either come by me or kind of directed at me, uh, which is to kind of be expected, I suppose, when you're working so closely together with other people. Um, and the kind of, as this is, you know, this is a recent thing as well, actually, but the most kind of successful, um, I suppose, de-escalation of tensions and, and then kind of like refocusing of the team back onto our collective goals um, has come from me kind of acknowledging that if we were to go into a staff meeting without kind of a script in place, then there was to be kind of fractious um, personalities in there um, that are kind of like a brawl of words was quite likely to happen. So I made sure that I took the time in advance to kind of just totally avoid that altogether. And I made, you know, I, I think it took me best part of 24 hours to write um, a kind of a 10-page long script as to what I wanted to say as my opening statement, which sounded a little bit clunky um, in kind of normal, natural kind of language, but I think everyone appreciated that I took the situation so seriously and I gave it the gravity it deserved. And whilst it was a strange speech to give in the middle of the office, um, it was a kind of that effort and that wanting to solve the problems um, kind of showed me to be of good intention and therefore people trusted it. Um, Trust, I suppose, is one of these buzzwords that I should have said a hundred times by now.
0: Now, unfortunately, our time together is very, very quickly drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does next 12 months have in store for Dig Bruco.
1: Sorry, I missed that last couple of words.
0: Um, what does the next 12 months have in store for Dig Brew Co.?
1: Oh, right. Um, so we um, are looking to expand our um, routes to market. Uh, we are in the process of buying a canning machine um, to put our beer into into cans. Um, we have canned beer in the past, but only through contract canning companies, which can get very expensive and um, it's quite difficult to fit into a schedule um so once that's there we hopefully will be able to start selling our beers um directly to customers all around the country um the idea being that we brew in very small batches on a very regular basis like we're very high turnaround because we're such a small brewery um and we prefer it if at all possible however unlikely that the beer is drank within you know, one week or two weeks after it's made, um, the styles that we make kind of really do favor that freshness. Um, so that's exciting. And then we're also going to be opening our first, um, bar that is, um, to stock our beers, um, outside of the brewery and it's taproom. Um, in Birmingham, it's going to be a bit of a prototype. We hope that it's a bit of a new concept that, um, my brother, who who is my right hand man at the brewery, um, and I have been like kind of playing with since we went on a family holiday to Spain, um, and hopefully that works. And all being well, it will it will be the beginning of a of a bit more of a, a push outside of the boundaries of Birmingham, perhaps to London or or Bristol or Edinburgh or wherever will have us really.
0: Well, Oliver, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you, and I very much look forward to speaking with you again on the program in the near future. Oliver, thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers. That was Oliver Webb, founder of Dig And now, if you haven't heard it before, it's Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett.
2: Uh, We're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary. David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure, but uh, since we are talking around the theme of leadership, it would be a remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party. Apart from, I'm sure your delight that a certain someone is
3: leaving a post, what are your thoughts on it so far? Well, I think the party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, are they in, in the stands watching, or are they on the pitch playing? And if they want to play then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good, positive ideas. I like them because they're about building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than... Trying to replicate a failed past, and she could reach out to people that others can't. So, I'm I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir Starmer is very professional, mm. very able, and presents extremely well. And I, I hope that one of those two uh, actually come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism,
2: especially from uh, four uh, candidates a little further left um, than them, who've criticised even the last Labour. Uh, Uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism.
3: Yes, I think it's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when new MPs come in, having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat, uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, we we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before. Sure start to nurture youngsters from the moment they were born. Transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalet is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tough home secretaries because the people that I cared about most were, on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a a single nation just off the coast of Europe and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in, but how how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world? Those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years, uh, an ageing population. Labour got 18% of the over 65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, and and climate th- change, which we all know is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us.
2: No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies certainly. And spe- speaking of your time... Uh, as home sectioning government, um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described? Ellie? Yes, I
3: mean, I, it's on the theme of bottom up. It was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children by inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, lighting a candle inside them, uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world, which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well, And I suppose that really comes down to uh, if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business, you can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that. The contribution to... Uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th- those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we mm. are dependent on each other.
2: Uh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin it, um, uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to giving your answer, David, to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day basis. And without them, half of society wouldn't function.
3: Completely. I I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's it's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognising that they are dependent on each other. I've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders... In a different vein, I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times. Uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom, in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in his conference speech the year before he stood down as prime minister Conglomerating, I suppose you would call it plagiarizing thoughts, ideas, ways forward from everyone around you. I often think that um, football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talked to the fans after the game.
2: Well, everyone knows, uh, David. You know you're a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. It Can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week afterwards. No, week.
3: No, it isn't. Although it's damn good for Sheffield, so I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment. That's very about good about Sheffield United in the Premier League because it it it's change. It does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City. Then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world, so that's good. I I, I could cry sometimes. We can we can beat uh, Brighton Premier League side in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them two nil in January. And then you can lose and then five you nil, lose five nil <laughs> at home to Blackburn, and half the fans were out of the ground by, by the half time what, what would
2: a manager blanket say in the situation I,
3: I would have asked myself a very simple question what went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field they walked instead of ran they didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds they showed no drive and incentive to take hold of the game what, what went wrong with the same players who would played very well the week previously. And if you could answer that question, and there may have something may have happened, who knows? Something during the morning before the game started, something may have gone sour. You get the answer to that question and you then start to ensure that we never never do this again. Yeah,
2: well I'm a Chelsea fan, so I'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute. Um, <laughs> but I would like to pick up on another point you just made actually, David, about choosing a strong team, people that compliment you. A lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick, perhaps, the more ambitious, the more uh, uh, uh people uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her. One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Assistant? Well,
3: I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which, as we record this podcast has not yet happened Mm. and I imagine I I would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle not just to get people in who he likes but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world you can pronounce on what you're going to do but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it, if they're just toadies by the way, and there is a tendency a new Mm -hmm. Prime Minister, larger majority got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them, but get able people in I I, I won't comment on some of the less able, but there are (laughs) clearly (laughs) in the Cabinet as I speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it, I mean, incidentally anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, Um, changed their minds recently about Mm. Sky, isn't worth their salt. But part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief, that you believe in it, and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa... Mm-hmm. For a, a, an easy morning television programme, get out of the business. You know, don't, don't w- do not it. Without a doubt. Yeah.
2: Uh, that's And also, I should add, that is how these uh, all stripes earn that respect in the first place.
3: But there is a question, isn't and there? i try trying to answer the questions. That's, <laughs> that's what I always try to answer the or questions. Or be very good at avoiding them, either way. Um, oh, well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why.
2: Yeah, quite. Uh, <laughs> uh, the... Um, And I think one of the great things about uh, the Leeds Council especially is that um, it takes and talks to people, again, from all different backgrounds, leading something very different. Whether it's a charity, whether it's a business, whether it's in politics. There comes points, though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether as leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary. When people are looking at you for
3: leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a, an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you, whether you're in public service, the charities, or you're driving a business that actually says, this is why I get up in the morning. So you've got to have something internal to yourself. The The second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better You you can take pride without being egotistical. There's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better. And that's why you need both sharp minds around you. In my case, it was special advisors as, as well as ministers. I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about, and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors, and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in, in the end, you've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin, they, they it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics. You, you're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education and employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do, and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us. It turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Mm Centre three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with the development of positive citizenship, which also had a read-over in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives, either for the better or the worse. And you don't get everything right. That's the other thing you've got to recognise, which is why being part of a broader team, being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> a, because otherwise you blow with the wind, that, that, that's the, the measure. And I think if we can share those traits, those experiences, those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel, it will take people a lot further than the the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, In the very, uh, in the couple of minutes we have left,
2: um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour leadership contest? How will the next few months go for the government after Brexit? uh, Well, after we leave the European Union on the 31st of January and where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league?
3: Lord above, I'm not. I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already indicated where my support is for the the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January, 2020, Keir Starmer has clearly got a got off to a very very um, strong start. I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the. Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people, the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019, uh, and that that's got to be Lisa Nandi or or Keir. on on the, um, the the next few months. I think that the government will probably do quite well. I I I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though. Alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships, in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my family and loved ones, is football and, and politics... I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, I think we could pull it off. But I am really reluctant.
2: And I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blanket, thank you very much for joining us God today. God bless
0: you, Jonathan. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye.